Hear the word of God from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. These readings come from the Common English Bible, but you can find them on page 954 in the Pew Bible. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any sharing in the Spirit, any sympathy, complete my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, being united, and agreeing with one another. Don't do anything for selfish purposes, but with humility think of others as better than yourselves. Instead of each person watching out for her own good, watch out for what is better for others. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have never preached a sermon based almost entirely on a single preposition until today. It is what I believe to be the most important, the single most important preposition in our Christian vocabulary. But more on that in a minute. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German preacher who dared to stand up to Adolf Hitler and was subsequently arrested by the Nazis and jailed with a death sentence over his head, was sitting in a cold, dark prison cell when he penned his famous collection of letters and papers from prison. And in that collection, he asks a question. A question that he says is the single most important question that anybody is to answer in their lives in any generation. Who is Jesus for us today? 2,000 years earlier, there was another man in prison. This one, the Apostle Paul. Himself also jailed with a death sentence over his head with an unknown fate, and he too was writing a letter. And in that letter to the church in Philippi, as if to have a conversation with Dietrich Bonhoeffer two millennia later, he answers that question, who is Jesus for us today? And in that response, in Philippians 2, the passage that Jess just read for us, he quotes what is widely regarded to be one of the very first Christian hymns. It's a hymn that is noted not just for its lyrics or its melody, but for its theology, for its astonishing claim about who God is in Jesus Christ. It's a reminder 
that Jesus, who was fully God, fully divine, humbly became fully human, fully just like us, to be with us so that we could be with God. There it is. With. The single most important preposition in Christian vocabulary. And because God is with us in Christ, we know exactly how Paul would answer Bonhoeffer's question, who is Jesus for us today? He would answer the question the very same way Bonhoeffer did. Jesus gave his life for the sake of humanity, so we are called to give our lives to God and to be in humble service to others. It is that one statement, it is that, it is that one core conviction that has formed the basis of Christian belief for 2,000 years. It is what guided Bonhoeffer, ultimately leading him to die a martyr's death. And it is the very same thing that guided the Apostle Paul, ultimately leading him to the very same fate. And it is the very same conviction for us today. Who is Jesus for us today? He is the one who is calling you to give your life to God, to give your life in service to others through humility and service. And if you look carefully, that, that very same conviction lies at the heart of our Apostles' Creed. You know, we're in week two of this five-week series called The Core of Our Convictions, where we track through the various sections of the Apostles' Creed. And if you were here with us last week, you know we began with the very first section of the Creed on I Believe in God the Father. Just 12 words. That's how long that first section was last week, which meant that I was able to take my time in the sermon and go almost word for word through that whole first section. You'd be happy to know I'm not going to do that today. Because this section on Jesus is 71 words long. Some of you have already remarked to me, even at the beginning of this service, at this series, you noted that this section on Jesus is not only long, it is exponentially longer than the ink that is spilled on the other two persons of the Godhead. I believe in God the Father is only 12 words long. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That section is only six words long. 71 words long. Why is that, you suppose? Why is it that the early church, in its development of the Christian creed, spent so much more time on Jesus than they did on the Father and the Spirit? Was it because Jesus won a popularity contest? You think they preferred God the Son more than they did God the Father and God the Holy Spirit? It might surprise you that the reason this section of the creed is so much longer is because the early church fought with each other about who Jesus was, about the answer to that question, who is Jesus for us today? It turns out Jesus back then, just as Jesus is today, is a source of great interest and great controversy. It was in 325 AD, the year after Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, that the Emperor Constantine 
called together a very special gathering of religious leaders all throughout the Western Roman world. It would become the first of many what we call councils of the church. This first one in a city called Nicaea. It was a huge gathering of people, 1,800 people from all over the Roman Empire, bishops and deacons and religious officials, all gathered together with a single purpose in mind, to write a creed, a set of convictions that defined its beliefs and ultimately answered that same question, who is Jesus for us today? And when I say they wrestled over it, I mean, I mean they really scrapped over it. The meetings did not all go well. It's hard enough, after all, for, for churches to settle disputes about lesser things like regular versus decaf coffee or foreign versus domestic cars or blue versus red or, or God forbid, gators versus seminoles. But the two sides of this debate about Jesus, they were deeply entrenched. Their fights were their fights were bitter. There were riots. There were secret conspiracies. There were backroom conversations. There was behind the scenes politicking. And at one point, there was even bloody murders going on between fellow Christians, fighting side by side against each other. You think there are divisions and polarizations in today's church and even in our own denomination? They didn't hold a candle to what the early church went through for almost 400 years. That's how long it took for the creed to get into its final form. They argued over words. They argued over phrases. The bottom line is they, they argued over concepts. How could someone be fully human and fully divine? That's what they fought over. On the one hand, they had some people who said, God, Jesus, Jesus is, is fully divine and, and only assumed the appearance of humanity, took on human flesh, put on the costume of humanity, mostly divine, all divine, somewhat human. On the other side, you had the exact opposite. Jesus was fully human, just like us, and just happened to do divine things. Oh, and they fought and they fought over this, arguing over words and phrases and deep things that mattered. These were disputes that could not be, could not be settled in just 12 words. These were disputes that could not be settled in just six words. So it required a very careful, comprehensive, and very long set of words and phrases that would ultimately make its way into our creed so that the church could ultimately come to its conclusions about Jesus. And that's why this section of the creed is the longest by far, because it has so much to say. And it all has to be heard. Jesus was fully God. That is clearly in our creed. Jesus is fully God. You can tell just by the phrases that are in there. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The third day he rose from the dead. He sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He ascended into heaven. He will come to judge the quick and the dead. That is fully divine language. That is language to remind us that Jesus is absolutely equal with God. He is God. Fully divine. One and the same. But Jesus is also fully human. There is no mistaking it. The other phrases in the creed underscore the fact that Jesus is also fully just like us. 
Just that one phrase. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Just right there in that one phrase, you get two profound statements. Number one, he suffered. Make no mistake about it. He experienced real pain physically and emotionally. He suffered the real hurts of what human beings go through. But not only did he suffer, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered under an actual, verifiable, historical, secular human being. Which means that Jesus is not just some mythological figure, not just some fable that we have created. He was an actual real-life person who existed in real time, in historical terms, under a very real historical era. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And make no mistake, he was crucified, he died, and he was buried. Which means not only was he human, he experienced everything of what it means to be human. Even the ultimate human experience, the ultimate human destiny, he died. Each line, each phrase, each word carefully constructed a confirmation that Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. And then there's this whole business about, I believe in the virgin birth. I know that it is, for some of us, the one phrase of the entire creed that is the most intriguing for us. I'm also very aware that, for some of us, it is the one line that can be the most problematic. The one line that, if you're tempted to do so, is the line that you say with your fingers crossed behind your back who have a hard time reconciling this statement with our contemporary, modern, scientific, rational selves. What does it mean to believe in the virgin birth? For me, I I could not possibly explain to you how something like the virgin birth could have happened or how it was a literal event in history. But I would say to you that the power and the truth of its meaning is more important than how it happened or the extent to which it happened. To say, I believe in the virgin birth affirms that Jesus' entry into this world was both supernatural and utterly natural. That it was both extraordinary and very earthly. He was not just any human being. He was conceived by God. He was was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was the fullness of God at the very same God. And so because of that, he needed to enter this world in a supernatural, extraordinary way, through an extraordinary way that defined expectation or explanation. Because as I said two weeks ago, like my friend Jason Biasi says to his congregation, if you understand it, it is not God. But Jesus' entry into this world was not just virgin, it was also birth. Both words are necessary. A real, natural, human birth with with the contractions and the breathing and the labor pains and the pushing and all of the visceral and muscular associations with what it means for us to enter into this world. Jesus 
was a real baby who was born a real birth and he cried real tears and he really skinned his knee and he really did have a problem with acne and his voice really did drop and he struggled with the very same things that you and I struggle with. His entrance into this world was not only virgin, it was birth. He was fully human and fully divine and both words are necessary. Every bit of this section of the creed just like every bit of Philippians chapter 2, reminds us of this core conviction to our faith. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. One plus one equals one. That doesn't make any sense. Those two natures should have been and could have been at odds with each other, but somehow they found a way to be with each other in Jesus there's that word again with and so it all gets back to the question that Dietrich Bonhoeffer posed from his jail cell and that the apostle Paul wrestled with in his what does this all mean for answering the question what does Jesus mean for us today I like the way Sam Wells addresses this question Sam Wells is the former dean of Duke Divinity School, and I like his answer. He observed that when we lay down our lives in service to other people, when we, when we give our lives to help other people, particularly people in need, especially the poor, he suggests that we often follow one of two different strategies. Strategies that we might label as first working for, and the other as being for. To be working for the needs of the poor means coming in as a fixer, coming in to solve all the problems and to make things right, to come in with our own expertise, our own resources, our own advantages, our own privileges to help those people in need. There's nothing wrong with that. But when that is the sole strategy, and when you take that strategy to an extreme, it is a strategy that is based on an almost vain, arrogant understanding of us and them. That we are the superior ones who come in to help the inferior ones, the ones who need our help, the ones who need us. And then there's the, the being for strategy. It means advocating for them, speaking out for them, empathizing, sympathizing with them, cheering them on, being a source of encouragement. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but when that becomes your only strategy, it is also based on an us versus them, that they are the source of the problem, that they in some cases, are the problem, and we are the solution, and we are the gracious benefactor and the person who is there to help the hapless ones. Working for, being for. But what about this? What if we take a cue from Philippians chapter 2 and these 71 words of the Apostles' Creed? What would happen if we followed the example of what God did in Jesus? The example of this Jesus who was fully God, 
and fully divine. What if, what if we remember that God decided that being superior to us was not enough? And that God decided one day, I don't like this superiority-inferiority dynamic. I don't like this us and them. In fact, I'm going to empty myself of all that it means to be superior. And I'm going to come down to be with everyone. After all, what, what does Emmanuel mean again? God with us. What if the Apostles' Creed was calling us to change those two strategies from working for and being for and invited us to swap the words for and with? Think of the profound difference that would make in the way that you see others, in the way that you see the poor, in the way that you see the homeless, in the way that you see the immigrant or the incarcerated, in the way you see the gay person, the lesbian person, in the way you see persons who think differently from you, who have different partisan political philosophies from you. Think of the way you would see people who have harmed you, who have done wrong to you, or the people that you have wronged. Perhaps you would begin to relate to them differently. Working with and being with means seeing in other people their humanity and their dignity and their worth. Not as problems to be solved, but as human beings just like you, who desire simply to be known, who desire to be loved, just like you. Working with and being with means that we are not the source of other people's solutions because, in fact, they might be the source of ours. For only in being together as one, without an us versus them, could we together receive all the wisdom and love and power and grace that God wants for all of us. Think of the difference that would make in the way you would answer the question, who is Jesus for you today? He is God with you. God with you. Now you can be with God. And now you are called to be with others. And so we conclude the sermon today, just as we did last week with a recitation of the Apostles' Creed, more than just a collection of mumbo-jumbo, more than just a rote thing we say when we gather together. This is a profound collection of statements that underscores our answer to the greatest question we will ever answer. This time as we say it, I invite you to pay particular attention to those 71 words, beginning with, I believe in Jesus Christ. This time, pay attention to the words that describe how fully God Jesus is and how fully human Jesus is. And listen for a way that it affirms that not only is God with us, we are with God and we are called to be with each other. So church, I invite you to stand. I direct your attention to the screens 
And in response to this question, brothers and sisters, what is it that you believe? And your response, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.